Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 11, Boudicca, part two. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sharon, Patricia, and Mark for signing up already. We're picking up our story with Boudicca and her army marching from Camilodunum, modern-day Colchester, and going to Londinium. If you're just joining the story, I highly recommend that you listen to prior episodes, or at least listen to Boudicca Part 1. But to remind everyone who the major players are and what's going on, Boudicca is at the head of a massive army of Iceni, Trinovante, and other surrounding tribes. They're rebelling because Roman policy under Nero and his procurator, Decianus Catus, has become increasingly harsh upon even the friendly tribes. And with a possible famine in the region, the people were going hungry. And hungry people are rebellious. So trouble was brewing. Then the Roman centurions flogged Queen Boudicca of the Iceni and gang-raped her two daughters. The region exploded into violence. And the governor, Suetonius, was 250 miles away, fighting in the region that we would come to know as Wales. The army of Britons had just sacked Camelodunum, killing everyone within. And according to the Romans sacrificed some of the townsfolk as well. And now that same army was burning its way to Londinium. Londinium was a relatively new trading port on the Thames, and was centered mere yards downstream from the current London Bridge. It was populated primarily with traders, craftsmen, and administrators. Because it was a major trading port, it was a wealthy town, which likely had slaves, lead, gold, marble, corn, wool, pottery, cattle, wine, and oysters, and just about everything else you could imagine, all within its borders. Furthermore, it was where the hated Decianus Catus was stationed. And finally, it was terribly defended. This was not a town populated by veterans, or an outpost with significant defenses built around it. Its approximately 30,000 residents were non-militaristic, wealthy, and most importantly, foreign, or collaborators. It's not hard to imagine why Boudicca's army was slowly lumbering towards this ripe town that had the mark of Rome upon every facet of its operation. So news of Camelodunum and Great Ratting reached Londinium well in advance of the Horde of Britons. The procurator who really started all of this, Decianus Catus, was not just greedy and calculating, he was also a coward. So rather than organizing defenses or facing what he had just created, he fled for Gaul, leaving southern Britannia leaderless and nearly lost. The Romans in Londinium must have been terrified, but not half as much as the Romanized Britons. If general human history is any guide, it's unlikely that the collaborators would be shown any mercy by their countrymen. But Suetonius had no desire to be known as the governor who lost Britannia. So there was hope. The trouble was that he was at Anglesey, 250 miles away. It would take at least two weeks for him to bring the 14th Legion and the auxiliaries of the 20th Legion south to the defense of Londinium. 
The Ninth Legion was rendered inoperable, and all that was left was the Second Legion, who were based at Exeter. And they were currently lacking a legate. The temporary commander of the Second, Poenius Postumus, was ordered to march to Londinium and defend the town until Suetonius could arrive, and then join his force and attack Boudicca. The trouble was that the Second Legion was in no shape to be able to face Boudicca's army. So given the choice between dishonor and death, Poenius chose life, and he refused to go. At least, that's the common viewpoint. However, there is some evidence of a rebellion that was happening in Somerset at this period, and perhaps he was simply unable to spare the men because his legion in Exeter was already bogged down. But whatever the case, he didn't abide by the governor's orders. Londinium was alone. Governor Suetonius dashed ahead with his cavalry, leaving orders that the rest of his men were to follow, and he reached Londinium to discover that his subordinate was a coward and that the Second Legion failed to arrive, and there were simply too few men to defend the town. Now, the speed that Suetonius arrived in London shows us that the enormous army that Boudicca had didn't have the discipline necessary to quickly march from place to place. After all, Suetonius covered 250 miles in less time than Boudicca covered 50, and he still had time to spare. But speed would not save the day, and now he was forced to make a difficult decision. Londinium was simply too ill-prepared and undermanned to be saved. So what do you do? He struggled with the choice, but he must have consoled himself with the knowledge that history is concerned with the outcome of wars not battles. If he could win the war, the loss of Londinium would be forgiven. And so Londinium would have to be sacrificed. Faith in the Roman way of life must have been shaken for many that day. After all, if the mightiest nation on earth could not defend its own cities from a woman, a woman, well, maybe they were backing the wrong horse. Regardless of any protests, Suetonius held his ground and insisted that the people evacuate. Any who were able to march could accompany him and the 14th Legion on their retreat. But there were those who could not, or would not, leave the city. As Suetonius and his procession pulled out of town, the only defenses offered to those left behind were prayers. Soon thereafter, the Britons swept into the town. No prisoners were taken. No slaves were sought. But once again, we are forced to rely on Roman accounts that were written to entertain crowds and bolster patriotism. So it's hard to tell the truth from fiction here. But Dio writes about grotesque atrocities being committed upon the local population, of impaling, of sexual mutilation, and other brutal acts. But once again, we lack any archaeological evidence supporting that account. There are no mass graves. And don't forget that his audience were the sort of people who went to gladiatorial games to watch people die for entertainment. So if he wanted to shock the conscience of people like that, he really needed to kick it up a notch. So if he did fabricate the impaling and sexual mutilation, it would make sense if he was trying to get these people's attention. On the other hand, he writes of how these acts were done in reverence to Andraste, and it does seem plausible that an incredibly militaristic culture would honor a goddess, especially the goddess of a woman who had been so terribly wronged by the Romans with blood sacrifice. 
And when you consider the fact that it was a noblewoman who had been brutalized and her daughters were gang raped, suddenly impalement, which is essentially a symbolic rape, and sexual mutilation of noblewomen, well, it starts to seem a little bit more likely. So, do you have the heebie-jeebies yet? Are you left wondering who the good guys are in this story? I don't blame you, but this is how history is. Even legendary heroines aren't that heroic once you start looking more deeply into the story. But the Britons did have their reasons, and they savaged Londinium, killing thousands and burning much of it to the ground. Though, the archaeological record seems to indicate that they weren't as thorough with their scorched earth policy as they were in Camelodunum. But without encountering any Roman resistance, they now could turn their attention upon Verulamium, modern-day St. Albans. Curiously, Verulamium wasn't Roman at all. Rather, it was Catavolani. Well, sort of. These weren't the defiant Catavolani we've come to know in the prior podcasts. Following the invasions of 43 CE and the loss of their kings Togodomnus and then Caractacus, the Catavolani shifted gears and became the vanguard of Romanization. They had lost the war against the Romans, and provided that they continued to expand their significant wealth, they were ready to adopt Roman culture. Roman clothing, education, and language were all embraced by these people. They even changed the name of their capital, Verlamion, to the Romanized Verulamium. This impressed the Romans so much that they routed their primary road, Watling Street, through the town and allowed local magistrates and their families to become Roman citizens. So Verulamium was a town of collaborators. Moreover, it was held by the Catavolani, who were the ancient enemies of the Trinovantes, and they had certainly heard of what happened in Camelodunum, and most likely, they knew of what occurred in Londinium. It's doubtful that you would have found many people staying at Verulamium. Unlike Camelodunum or Londinium, they were not in denial. They must have known that they were next in line to face Boudicca's wrath. And they also knew that if Suetonius was unwilling to save a Roman town, he wouldn't lift a finger to save theirs. So the people took what possessions they could carry with them, and they fled. Meanwhile, Boudicca's army had grown complacent with success. The rage that had driven them for their early assaults had worn off, and now they were jubilant over their victories. The army that had once been concerned with vengeance was now becoming interested in looting and feasting. Additionally, more family members were flocking to the army to witness their victories, like an ancient version of an American tailgate party. Because of this, it was an agonizingly slow process to get the army from Londinium to Verulamium. And it raises the question, did Boudicca have a strategy that went beyond burning down every city that looked Roman? As a terror tactic, it worked fine, I suppose. But she and her army were distracted by the prospect of sacking cities and missed the opportunity to strike at Suetonius directly. And if she did that and was successful, it's possible that she could have won the war. After all, it seemed that Suetonius was the only thread holding Roman Britannia together. It would have been a simple matter of setting up an ambush, like she did with the 9th Legion and striking before he could rejoin the 14th. All of Britannia would have been left without a leader, and then she could march from fort to fort and wipe out the remaining Roman forces. But instead, she attacked Verulamium, 
This act suggests that maybe she wasn't so much of a leader, but rather she was a figurehead. After all, the Catavolani were the enemies of the Trinovante, and their first target, Camelodunum, was also the territory of the Trinovante. Maybe the Trinovante were really running the show. But of course, that's all speculation. But back to the story. So Boudicca's army arrived at Verulamium and sacked the town in short order. It had probably been cleared of possessions before the army could get there. But if there was anything of value left in the town, you could be sure that it ended up on one of those carts that trailed the rebel army. But by and large, it seems that there wasn't much to take. After all, they had taken so long to reach the town that the Catavolani had plenty of time to evacuate. So Boudicca's army looked for better targets and found them in the outlying lands. Romanized homesteads held considerable wealth. Well, they did before Boudicca's army got there. The army looted and burned everything they could get their hands on. Roman, Romanized Britain, or simply Britain. It didn't matter anymore. After all, there were old rivalries between the tribes, and they weren't going to let their pursuit of the Romans get in the way of a chance to stick it to a rival tribesman. Things were quickly getting out of control and falling apart. With what Tacitus estimated as 70,000 slain citizens, 1,500 dead legionnaires, and three smoldering towns in their wake, the Britons continued their march along Watling Strait. By now, Suetonius had rejoined his column, which consisted of about 10,000 men from the 14th and 12th legions, along with their auxiliaries. As an interesting side note, Agricola, who would become governor in later years, was serving as an officer in the 20th legion at this time. Anyway, so you have 10,000 Roman legionaries, as well as auxiliaries, all under the command of Suetonius. Meanwhile, Boudicca's army was estimated by the Romans to consist of 230,000 Britons. But... We all know how the Romans were given to exaggeration, so it probably wasn't that large, but even if you're conservative and you assume that they doubled the number for dramatic effect, you still have a gigantic disparity in the size of the forces between the two armies. But, as we discussed earlier, Boudicca's army wasn't just a column of warriors. It was a full wagon train that included children, the elderly, carts with their possessions, and why not? If you left your kids and grandparents at home, they'd be at risk of being abused by angry Romans. It was much safer to bring them near Boudicca's army. After all, it already had proved that it could defeat the Romans. Not to mention the fact that there were also the angry Catavolani who might be looking for some revenge of their own. So, there were plenty of reasons for families to want to stay nice and close to Boudicca. But Suetonius knew he had to fight the Britons. And soon... They were growing short on supplies, and every day that Boudicca's army was in the field was another day she could recruit more warriors to her cause. And every day of rebellion weakened the Romanization of the province, in both the short term and the long term. Something would have to be done. He selected a battleground that we think was close to Watling Street, northwest of Towster. Some think it was near Manketer, but it's unlikely that Boudicca made it into the Midlands. Anyway, he found a site that had its flanks protected by woods and hills, with a large open plain in front of it. And there, he waited for Boudicca. And loyal listeners are probably shouting, No! Don't fall for it! 
Don't you know what happened to Cassivellaunus and Caractacus and Togodomnus and virtually everyone who's ever faced the Romans in organized battle? But maybe Boudicca didn't know about those events. Or maybe she didn't give a f She was Boudicca. Whatever her reason, she marched her army to Suetonius and arranged her forces on the plain opposite the Romans. Behind them were the carts carrying all their possessions, arranged in a semicircle. And sitting on the carts were the children, the elderly, and anyone who couldn't fight. They were basically spectators, eager to watch the final downfall of the invaders. They had been waiting 17 years for this moment. They weren't going to sit at home and wait to hear stories about it. They wanted to be there to see every last bit of it. Suetonius's legions stood in organized ranks of silver and red, watching as Boudicca's army formed into a vast, largely unarmored mob. Many of the Britons were half-naked, painted blue, and probably at least a little buzzed on ale. The Romans, with particularly good eyesight, would have noticed that in addition to lacking armor, many of the Britons also lacked decent weaponry. The privileged few had swords and shields, but the bulk of the army had to rely upon knives, hunting spears, and courage. The Romans watched in silence as the Britons fully fanned out across the field and screamed war cries and brandished their weapons in defiance. The sight must have been terrifying. They were outnumbered even with conservative estimates at around 10 to 1. They knew that the Britons had no intention of taking prisoners, and they also likely heard rumors of what sort of grisly end could await them in the groves should they fail. The soldiers would have had to have been inhuman to not be quaking in their sandals. But they were Roman soldiers, and so the years of discipline kicked in. Despite the scenes set out before them, they remained silent and motionless. They saw Boudicca mount her chariot and drive to the front of the army. She said something to them, but we don't have any knowledge of what that was. Tacitus and Dio both include speeches in their histories but they're literary devices rather than actual historical records. And they play up the strangeness of having a woman leader and romantic notions of the Britons being noble savages. But whatever she said, I'm sure she gave a stirring speech. And she likely reminded the army of the brutality that they had faced at the hands of the Romans and of the brutality that their families would face in the future if the battle was lost. She probably spoke about how they were on the verge of expelling the Romans from their lands and of the victorious feasts that they would have following the battle. And she probably invoked the ancient Celtic deities. But this is all guesswork. And unfortunately, it's something we can never know. But what we do know is that Suetonius addressed his men and largely reminded them that they were professionals and highly trained. Quote, Keep your ranks tight. And once you've discharged your javelins, then continue the slaughter and devastation with shields and swords, never stopping to think of plunder. When you've won yourselves victory, you can have it all." End quote. Tacitus, Annals, 1436. I find this description to be much more likely to be accurate. Not only does it sound like it comes from a battle hardened general, but the source is also much more reliable, considering that Tacitus' father-in-law was present for that speech. With the speeches done, the armies were ready. And a roar of hatred exploded from the British lines as their chariots raced back and forth, 
urging their compatriots into a frenzy. And then the horns blasted, and the Britons rushed headlong across the field. And the Romans remained silent and motionless. The British were now halfway across the field, howling in fury with their weapons held high, and still, the Romans just watched. The Britons were getting closer now. The raw fury of the British line was nearly upon them, a seething mass of passionate hatred that dwarfed their force. And all the Romans had to rely upon was steel and discipline. The line started to compress, hemmed in by the trees that flanked Suetonius's position. But still, the Britons came, and now they were within 100 yards. The Romans must have nervously gripped their javelins, fighting back the urge to just hurl it. Surely, the Britons were close enough. What was the governor waiting for? And then the order came. The Britons were in range. In a fluid motion, the Romans hurled their javelins into the advancing Britons. Approximately 7,000 heavy barbed-tipped javelins arced silently through the air and mercilessly cut through the advancing Britons. And then the second volley rained down upon the Britons. And now the advancing warriors were forced to scramble over the bodies of their dying comrades just to reach the Romans. But 14,000 javelins was not enough to stop the deluge of Britons that now converged upon Suetonius. As soon as the second javelin was away, the legionnaires drew their short swords and advanced upon the enemy in a devastatingly effective wedge-shaped formation that divided the superior numbers of the Britons. This was what the Romans had prepared for, and all that training and discipline paid off as the ordered machine of war that Rome was famous for went to work. The fighting was close quarters, and before long, Britons were likely forced to stand on the bodies of their brethren just to get within striking range. And to make matters worse, the location of the trees, in combination with the wedge formation, began to crush the British army. Suddenly, their numbers were a detriment, and it would have been difficult for any advancing British warrior to even raise his weapon. The Romans, on the other hand, were well trained for this sort of combat, and had enough space to make mincemeat out of their enemy. A bash of the shield here, a thrust and twist of a gladius there, and another Briton would fall. But despite their ferocity and their superior numbers, the Britons could not break through the ranks of the Romans. And because of that, they were getting slaughtered. And then the Roman cavalry swept down in a pincer movement. It began with a single panicked warrior. It always does. One person screams in terror and starts to run from the field. Maybe one or two fighters nearby were starting to waver after seeing so many dismembered limbs and broken bodies at their feet. And that person's flight gave them license to also flee. And then a column breaks. And then the entire army. Tens of thousands, maybe over a hundred thousand men and women fled screaming from the battle against the Romans and directly into the semicircle of carts and their family members. Roman cavalry raced to cut down the routing army and slaughtered their horses. There would be no escape now. Meanwhile, the Roman infantry continued their advance, and they cut down every Briton in their path. The Romans claimed that seeing this disaster, 
Boudicca poisoned herself and her daughters to avoid capture and torture at Roman hands. However, her body was never found. The Romans wrote of how 80,000 Britons fell in this battle, while only 400 Romans were slain. Again, I think we have some significant exaggeration here, especially when you compare it to the casualty numbers of battles prior to World War I. Moreover, 400 Roman casualties seems a bit light. After all, 7,000 men were sent from Germania to assist Suetonius in reestablishing order in Britannia. But, even if you assume there was exaggeration, the slaughter inflicted upon Boudicca's army ended the rebellion. Though it should be noted that the last person killed by that battle was actually a Roman. When news of the Roman victory reached Poenius, the commander of the 2nd Legion who failed to obey Suetonius' orders, well, he was overcome with shame, and he fell on his sword. Word of the rebellion and Suetonius' victory reached Rome and Nero provided Suetonius with reinforcements. He used these new soldiers to engage in a campaign of retribution. He brought fire and sword to any tribe he suspected of having any rebellious sympathies while building forts throughout the south to discourage any future insurgencies. Only fiercely loyal client kingdoms were spared his wrath. As far as Suetonius was concerned, even if you did not take part in the revolt, you were complicit unless you actively fought against it. Essentially, if you were a Briton, you were guilty unless you could prove otherwise. And if you lived in the territories of the Iceni or Trinovante, nothing could save you. In those regions, there's really only one term that applies to his behavior. Ethnic cleansing. The resistance was effectively put to an end. Suetonius' revenge continued through 61 CE, and devastated the economy of the South for a generation. His vengeance was so terrible that Southern Britannia never again rebelled against Rome. Luckily for the Britons, a new procurator, Julius Alpinus Classicianus, was sent to Britannia, and he was more of a statesman than a general. Suetonius's campaign was expensive in both the long and the short term, and after a short inquiry of the provincial status was taken, Suetonius was recalled to Rome, and a new governor, Petronius Terpilianus, did not have Suetonius's taste for war. Consequently, Tacitus didn't have many nice things to say about him, but it was probably due to his mild administration and the fact that he ended the war against the Britons that Rome was able to hold Britannia without any outbreaks of violence during his term. He was succeeded by Trebilius Maximus, who was also a rather mild and liberal governor. The eight years that Britannia was ruled by these two governors did much to heal the wounds inflicted by Suetonius. Eight years of peace wasn't exactly popular with the Roman soldiers who rather enjoyed looting. And in the end, the 20th Legion mutinied, and a new governor, Vedius Bolanus, had been assigned. So yeah, the soldiers were a bit pouty about the peace. However, the people liked it, so you know... Walk it off. Peace is good for reconciliation. And through it, the Britons began to realize that it was possible to live under Roman rule without being brutalized. They probably began to believe it was not the occupying country that was a problem, merely the governor that was put in charge. This move, by the way, was a stroke of genius by Nero. And it's a shame he doesn't really get credit for it. 
Essentially, he used a defense tactic that's common in the American civil courts, known as the rogue employee defense. Basically, a company claims that it wasn't the company's policies that caused the plaintiff's injuries, but rather, it was just a bad single rogue employee who acted on his own. Of course, this often requires a sacrificial lamb, and you kind of have to imagine that there were no policies there to begin with, but sacrificial lambs are plentiful in large corporations and Roman empires. Anyway, it appears that Nero was using an ancient version of that. He had Suetonius act as a hammer and savage the island, and then he was able to dispatch a couple teddy bear governors to convince the population that it wasn't Rome or Nero that was an issue. It was just Suetonius, he was a bad governor. And don't worry about it, because it's all been taken care of. It's a defense that worked well back then, and it still works well today. But any pride that he might have felt regarding that manipulation didn't help his self-image. And in 68 CE, Nero committed suicide following the massive unrest in Gaul. His death led to the infamous year of the four emperors. And while that is an interesting side story, the main impact it had on our story is that at long last, the Roman hold in Britannia was thoroughly weakened. And guess who was really excited about a weak and distracted Roman Britannia? Our old friend, Venutius. While Suetonius was at Mona fighting the Druids, Venutius waited. While Boudicca was killing everyone in the south, Venutius still waited. While Suetonius burned the south, Venutius held. But here was his chance. The 20th Legion had just mutinied. The region had a new untested governor. The empire was in chaos. And even a legate from the 2nd Legion, Vespasian, was vying for the crown. He would not have a better chance than right now. So he launched a full-blown civil war. Probably with the aid of the Solures, among others. And Cartamandua once again had to beg Rome for assistance. Suddenly, Roman Britannia's entire northern border was at war. But with the succession issues, Rome simply lacked the strength to suppress Venutius and his people. All Governor Bolanus was able to do was send auxiliaries to rescue Cartamandua. Absent from the description is Velicatus, Cartamandua's lover and Venutius's armor-bearer. Remember him? The pool boy? I wonder what happened to him. Anyway... Venutius was now a rebel king, and he reigned until 72 CE, where he was confronted by Petilius Serialis, the legate of the 9th Legion who barely escaped with his life on that first encounter with Boudicca. Now, we don't have any account of what occurred between Serialis and Venutius, but it seems clear that he was forced into submission and was driven from his kingdom once more. And from there he vanishes into obscurity. Brigantium, which was once wild and fractured, had become quite Romanized and militarized under the reign of Cartamandua. And consequently, claiming the territory from Venutius was a fairly easy task for Serialis. And Cartamandua, 18 years after the betrayal of Caractacus, was finally dethroned and was forced to flee her kingdom. I wonder if she relocated to Rome, now under the control of Emperor Vespasian. I hope she did. And I hope that Caractacus was still alive. While there are no accounts of their lives, 
It brings a smile to my face to think of those two meeting awkwardly at a market on some idle Tuesday. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. 